I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. If your plants could talk to you, what would they say? Mine would probably say, let us in, it's cold outside. But we may not have to wait for much longer to find out in truth. Scientists from MIT and the University of California have used nanotechnology to teach spinach to send emails. I think spinach might be a good option for me by the end of the week. They'd be more coherent than my emails. But an experiment found out that when engineered plants' roots detect certain chemicals in the groundwater the leaves can send out a signal. The researchers read that signal using an infrared camera to send an email alert. It's also thought that this technology could help warn us about problems like pollution and climate change. Plants can absorb an incredible amount of information from the world around them, so scientists think that they're well suited to monitor ecological changes. So perhaps in the future we could all be getting emails from our plants to tell us when they need watering. This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Fiona Davison. We're also looking to the future today as we discuss sowing seeds. Later in the episode, we'll be hearing from an RHS advisor about how to grow our much-loved houseplants from seeds and our chief horticulturist will be helping us sow seeds like a pro. This time of year is very exciting for us gardeners. There's so much optimism that comes with getting those first seeds on the go. Talking of first, I remember my initial attempts at growing seeds from scratch. It's more than 20 years ago now. Moved to my first garden and it was a wreck full of brambles and old pramps and all sorts of broken glass and rubbish. But I decided to try growing seeds and I started with, I think, snapdragons and the excitement of seeing those little seeds germinate and thinking, gosh, I can maybe really do this. I can maybe really garden. It's so exciting. For organic grower and writer Claire Ratnan, Her introduction was the humble tomato. I love growing tomatoes for so many reasons. I think partly because it was one of the first seeds I ever sowed myself in my home and grew appallingly to start with. So I think it has been a wonderful guide on my learning curve of what to grow and where. And I think that from then on, I've it's been the thing that I look forward to, to growing and eating every season the absolute most. It's one of the most satisfying plants to grow when it works. Emphasis on when it works, obviously. <laughs> and, and I think it's always been magnificent to me how incredibly tiny the seed is and how 
beautifully, wonderfully monstrous the resulting plant can be. And I love the smell of the leaves. It's one of my absolute favourite things. I I love pruning and side shooting my tomatoes purely because I love the scent that it puts out and then the way that it changes my fingertips from green to like yellowy black and it's just a fantastic plant and I just love how once it's happy how rampantly it grows and how desperately it wants to grow more of itself even when you try and curtail it it's just insatiable I really love it I learned that tomatoes don't want to grow inside in one of my first seasons of growing in London when I decided to see whether I could grow them on a windowsill in my one-bedroom flat with no outside space. I can't remember exactly the variety, but it was a cherry tomato. And rather miraculously, I did get a very, very small harvest of about three cherry tomatoes, which seems, now that I understand them, totally miraculous but they were the saddest plants they'd grown spindly and long and they were desperately stretching towards the sun and they had no weather to buffer them and and encourage them to grow thick and strong they were the saddest plants I've ever grown and hopefully the saddest plants I'll ever grow ever because I won't make the same mistake again as to assume that a tomato can grow on a windowsill with no interaction with the outside world at all. I was very excited to have them. And so I think they tasted magnificent because they were so, so satisfying. But um, I don't don't think they had quite enough sunshine to actually taste sweet and as joyful as I realise now tomatoes can taste when they're really basking in their best possible living situation in the the, the warm, warm sun. I think while it's still grey and a bit gloomy outside, it's nice to dream about the summer, isn't it? You know, I'm not one to wish time away, but but it's nice to get the seed catalogues out and imagine what tomatoes we'd like to be harvesting in five or six months' time when the, the sun is glorious. So, yeah, I think now's a perfect time to order your seeds and get planning. I tend to resist the urge to sow seeds too early because I find that if you've sown your seeds early and, and then you end up having to coddle them and shelter them for a sort of longer than is ideal, it doesn't always make for the strongest plant. But having said that, when it comes to the, the larger tomato varieties, this year I'm going to try and grow purple calabash and in previous years I've grown brandy wine and um, Paul Robeson and purple Cherokee. It sometimes helps to actually have a bit of an early start because they do require a longer season to reach maturity and for the fruit to have enough time to swell and ripen with enough sunshine. And depending on where you're living, an early start can sometimes be a really good thing. I love all tomatoes, honestly. I think I can find some virtuous element to every tomato I come across. If it isn't the loveliest to eat fresh, I will almost invariably find something delicious to do in the kitchen with it. But my favourite, actually, is is the black cherry. I really love it. It's such a, it's an easy one to grow. It's such an unusual looking little fruit because it's got quite a kind of purpley, dark skin. And it's just such a delicious tomato. And it's just a, quite a straightforward one. It can be quite a big plant when it's mature, but you can keep it under control. So it's not so bad for smaller gardens too. So yeah, black cherry is probably my favourite. If your plan is only to grow cherry tomatoes, then I'd probably hold out and sow a little bit later because they are quicker to bear ripe fruit. And so um, I think I would tend to hold off and maybe wait until there's a, a little more sunlight in the day. 
So I'm not quite as enamoured with the tomatoes that you grow for sauce. So I try really hard to eat as many of the tomatoes I grow fresh with just a sprinkle of salt and pepper and a little bit of olive oil, if possible. But I love cooking with tomatoes too. I love tomatoes. <laughs> I really do. I love them. I cook with them all the time. But the ones that I grow, I try and grow ones that I could eat raw because that flavour is its magnificent. And it is... It's one of those flavours that it's only really possible to really taste a great tomato if it's either homegrown or grown by a small-scale farmer, I think, because those ones that are kind of perfectly uniform and plastic packaged in the supermarkets just don't really... They're just not up to scratch at all. And I think for the longest time, I didn't even realise tomatoes could taste so fantastic fresh. Tomatoes are such a big part of the cooking that I, I do. They're such a, a huge part of, of the cooking my family does and they're just the base of so many dishes from Mauritius that I think I'll always love tomatoes. I can't imagine getting bored of them. Here in Claire has reminded me that tomatoes are one of the many plants that can begin their growing journey around now. But with so much on offer and seed packets often giving you a really wide range of sowing times, it can be hard to decide when to get going. Don't worry though, we have a man who knows. Our chief horticulturist Guy Barter is here with his ultimate guide on sowing seeds. I grew up in the country and um, I learned gardening at the knee of my uncles and father and uh, old chap down the road called Willie Weeks. The first seeds I sowed were some oats and barley from the corn bins. I grew a little patch, maybe a square metre, prized by my seven-year-old self, somewhat smaller than the spade, out of a bit of waste ground covered in cooch and grew a little crop of, of corn. I did get some corn, but corn is extremely easy to grow, so uh, it was a good thing to start with. Gardeners are often perplexed about when to sow seeds and there's calendars published to guide them. But the simple rule is that the smaller the seed, the smaller the seedling and the slower it grows. So small things you need to get started early. And that includes tomatoes, aubergines, peppers, flowers. It's things like begonias. The seed is absolutely dust-like. Of the very small seeds, the things that really appreciate a start in February are chilli peppers. And chilli peppers are hugely popular these days, so I'm sure that up and down the country people will be growing any of the enormous range of chilli peppers that are now offered. If you can't get them started early, there's no shame in going to a garden centre in March and April and buying some of the excellent plants that are offered at a very reasonable price, or going mail order and having some plug plants delivered in March or April. But having said that, you get a much better range of different kinds of vegetable, different cultivars to sow if you buy from seed. And growing from seed is such fun. So even if you haven't got space to grow all the tender plants you need to grow, then at least try some. Now, some plants have got large seeds and these are ever so easy to start later because they produce a big seedling that soon catches up. So things like runner beans and French beans, pumpkins, courgettes, squash, sweet corn... If you start these in mid-April, the big seedlings will shoot ahead and you'll have strong plants to put out in June when the risk of frost has passed. One of the questions we're most often asked is why are there tomato transplants long and leggy? Well, the answer to that is 
how you sowed them. And the best way to sow tomato seeds is to start them in a heated propagator in February if you're going to grow them in a greenhouse and in March if you're going to plant them outside. And the seeds are very small so they need to be sown shallow. So I like to use a pot of seed compost, firm gently, seeds sown with about a finger width between them, covered with vermiculite and germinated in my heated propagator. As soon as the seedlings are handleable, I take them by the leaf and put them in a single nine centimetre pot filled with multi-purpose peat-free compost. And they must go in the very brightest light you can find. If you've got a heated greenhouse, you are very lucky. But a frost-free conservatory is good too. And if push comes to shove, you can grow them on a sunny windowsill. One of the things that people don't realise is that the leaves of tomato plants must never touch. So they're well spaced and then they'll be much more sturdy and much less leggy. Now, give them some potassium fertiliser, that's tomato feed, once the roots are coming out the bottom of the pot. And with luck, they'll soon begin to flower. By the time April comes round in sheltered gardens, you can often pop them outside in an unheated greenhouse or a cold frame or even in a sheltered spot under a double layer of fleece. When the plants are in flower, they go to their final position. If they have got a bit leggy and the flowers are quite high, just put the plant in deeper. Tomatoes are very resilient and they'll root from the stem if planted deep. One of the other things that foxes people is side shooting them. Left to its own devices, your standard tomato will grow into a great sprawling monster. That's quite hard to handle. So what people do is they guide this tomato as a single stem up a stick or a string. I prefer a stick. And every little side shoot, they pinch out, take it out with their finger and thumb, leaving the one at the top in case it all goes wrong and they break the top off and you've got one to take over. When the tomato is set about six trusses, that's six bunches of fruit in the greenhouse, or four or five outdoors, that's enough. They won't ripen anymore. So pinch out the top, continue feeding with potassium-rich fertiliser and get ready to harvest. People often struggle with using peat-free compost to sow seeds. I tend to use multi-purpose peat-free compost. I sieve it if it's lumpy. And the lumps and sieved out pieces I put aside and add to the bottom of pots when I do my potting on later. Sieving compost isn't particularly fun, so I only sieve enough to half-fill the containers. The rest of the containers I fill with ordinary multi-purpose compost. When you're sowing seeds, you do need a, a small particle size so the seeds can be sown evenly at the same depth and in close contact with moist, not too free draining, but not too soggy seed compost underneath them. As for what could be going wrong with peat-free compost, there's a number of things. One is we've already covered, they tend to be coarse in texture. They've got a lot of big lumps that helps drainage, which is very important when you're filling larger pots but it's less important when you're filling smaller pots and seed trays or modules. The other is particle size. Even after you sieve them, the particle sizes are sometimes not ideal and the compost tends to lie too wet. When this happens, I mix in vermiculite, medium vermiculite, to about 30% by volume. Finally, peat-free compost, the multi-purpose types, are pretty rich in fertiliser. That's important when you want to pot up larger plants so they grow fast and healthily. However, too much fertiliser in the seed compost can harm seeds. It's too salty. So what I do is after I've sown the seeds, I water heavily and wash out the excess fertiliser so that the seeds are not germinating into salty compost. Then we come to the containers. What are some plastic-free alternatives for sowing seeds? 
Well, like most people who've been gardening for a long time, I've got a big collection of plastic pots and I've reused them over and over. So I'm, I wouldn't buy any more. But if I did buy more, I would buy biodegradable ones. These come in three types. One is their hard plastic material that's only biodegradable in a composting site and then by industrial composting. Unfortunately, there's no special collection for those, to the best of my knowledge, so I tend not to use those. The other ones are reusable, but they're made of softer material, bamboo, for example, or miscanthus. They'll last some years and they will rot down in your compost bin when they're finished. I like these. They're fun to use. They're pleasant to use. The other thing you can use is a biodegradable pot. These contain paper. There are some that are peat-free, and those are the ones to go for, obviously. And here, the plants grow in the pots. The roots come out the side, and you plant the pot, plants and all, and they just carry on growing with no transplanting check. These are really good. They're particularly useful when you're planting on the allotment, because otherwise you have to gather up all the plant pots and bring them back, and that's no fun at all. And you might bring back disease from the allotment. We'll hear more from Guy next week, as he'll be hosting the show. If you're on the lookout for more gardening tips and tricks, look no further than The Garden Magazine. All RHS members receive a copy each month, and every issue is full of plant profiles, gardening advice, visits with leading designers and much, much more. March's edition is about to arrive on doorsteps, and so I'm joined with the editor Chris Young to talk about what's inside. Hello, Fiona. So, Chris, what are some of the main pieces you'd like to highlight? Well, I think the thing to highlight for this month, because there's always so much to say, is that um, it's a special issue. So there's something different. We don't do it that often, actually, in the garden, where we dedicate most of the content around a theme. We used to do it in many, many years ago, and we'd look at climate change or environment or foreign gardens or something like that. But we've tended to um, focus just on the general interest of gardens in the last few years. But this month, in the March issue, it's all about getting ideas for growing, planting, design, uh, and things to do in your garden. So we're really wanting to help people look at their garden so they can think about what to grow, how they might change or design it, and also some hands-on practical advice to make the most from their garden. And I understand the main feature is something called water-wise gardening. So what exactly do we mean by water-wise gardening? Well, it's, yeah, it's one of the really important features this month. In March, I don't know about you, Fiona, but it feels like it's been raining since I was a child. <laughs> Up at the to moment. my knees in water. That's the water wise I need is wellies. So um, <laughs> it's perfect timing for a magazine to do an article all about water when it hasn't <laughs> stopped raining since I was seven. But yeah, water wise gardening is really important because how do we as gardeners deal with too much water or too little water? We are never satisfied as a nation in so many ways, but especially about water. So this article has been written by our very own water scientist, Janet Manning, and she is encouraging all of us to look could water in a different way. Yes, having some water butts and collecting water is really, really important. But so is thinking about your soil. How does your soil interact with water? How does it hold water? How does it percolate the water? What sort of plants are you going to be growing in that soil? How little water do they need? So all of these, this mindset she's encouraging us is to say, look, water's important. It's a finite resource. We should respect it. We shouldn't be turning on the taps for our watering, our, for our gardens. We should be looking at as natural a way to garden as possible. 
And it's that sort of encouragement and just making us think differently about how we view and we consider water. She really does challenge you to think differently about water use and being water wise. We also have another of Mark Diacono's taste series and you cover some greens and things that people might not be familiar with. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, Mark is a great gardener and food writer. And what Mark does is he really explores the taste of why people grow things, which it sounds pretty obvious. But actually, most articles when you do about grow your own fruit or veg, it's about growing them. And actually, sometimes it stops at the flavour and the culinary aspect. Mark has done many articles for us in the Taste to Celebrate series. This month, it's about oriental greens things like pak choy or Chinese mustard or rosette pak choy or mizuna. So these things that some of us may have heard about, we might have had the odd packet of seed given to us or we've bought on a bit of a whim. But he's really saying that these are part of the range of things that we can grow our own um, and are edible. I think edible. Thing, you think because they sound a bit exotic, they must therefore be hard, but not necessarily. They're not. Actually, they're as simple as just throwing them down and, and getting them growing. There is an issue that you want to either grow them earlier in the season or later so they don't bolt and go to seed. So a a lot of people do use a lot of these oriental greens later in the season from sort of August onwards, but you can grow them earlier in the season. They've got some lovely leaves. And as ever with these articles, we spend quite a lot of time on the photography. So you can really enjoy the, the different variability of the rounded leaves or the thin crinkly leaves. That's a technical term. Um, but you can, <laughs> you, can, um, you, can, you can see not how they would look on your plate as well as how good they taste. Oh, and that matters too. It's very good. Any other highlights you can point us to or have we, have that, we that is one. That is one of your better questions. There are <laughs> plentiful <laughs> highlights. Um, so if you just put your feet up and get a cup of tea, I'll be back with you in an hour. So as part of this special issue, we're looking at lots of different ideas. We've got six very different gardens, all of them much smaller, actually much more kind of realistic in size to most of us and how we garden. So there's some really nice different designs and styles within those gardens. Lots of hands-on stuff, growing your own vegetables in small spaces. We've also got loads of stuff about some projects with children as well. We've got a houseplant profile. But the other big article I would love to mention, if you're still with me, Fiona, is an article... <laughs> I'll indulge you. On, on, <laughs> you do indeed. On hedges. Lee Hunt, who uh, many people will well know, the voice and the brain of this very podcast, is a great writer as well. And he writes with Chana Blanuza, one of our scientists. And they've done some research on the role of hedges. And this is brilliant because not only do we love hedges from a garden design or garden making point of view, but the research that our scientists have done proves now that certain hedges have great value. So you can actually plant a hedge because you wanted to reduce the noise level of the road. You could plant a hedge because actually it'll slow down the rainwater and reduce runoff. You could grow a hedge to help you trap pollution. You can grow a hedge for wildlife. So Lee has looked at hedging and actually given us plentiful ways to think of hedges differently. So you think of what you want to do, like pollution or wildlife or seasonal interest, and he gives you the recommendations for those hedges. So it's a big seven-page article, written brilliantly. It's got loads of facts and detail that you would expect from an RHS article, but it's actually really useful. We've got a terrific book in the library of write-up of a Highways England project to experiment with which would be the best hedge to use as a natural crash barrier on the middle aisle of motorways. And we've got lots of pictures of Hillman imps wedged in various species of hedge as to which one best stopped a Hillman imp. Yeah. Berberis. (laughs) Was it Berberis? (laughs) Yeah. Well, stop a Hillman imp. There you go. (laughs) 
Well, that was fantastic, Chris. Lovely to hear from you again. And wait till next month for another exciting instalment. Thanks very much, Fiona. Back to seeds. I didn't realise, but there are actually some houseplants that can be grown from seed. RHS gardening advisor James Lawrence has some tips on how to start them off. Some houseplants can be successfully grown from seed, and there's something special in seeing the plant develop from germination through to the juvenile and mature stage. Some seed companies and garden centres will offer a range of houseplant seeds which you can try, and they may include plants such as Oxalis triangularis, asparagus fern, which is not a fern at all, lithopes or living stones and plants that you may grow outside or inside such as coleus or sarracena, the pitcher plants. Perhaps the most widely available and worth a try is growing your own mixed cactus from seed. And this is the added excitement of not knowing which cactus species you're actually going to get. In order to do this, the procedure is as follows. Find some seed trays or pots and fill three quarters high with a free draining compost which will have added grit or horticultural grade sand. And you're looking at roughly a mix of 30 to 40% grit or sand to the compost. The compost itself can either be the seed compost or a well-sieved multi-purpose compost, in which case you might want to increase the amount of grit and sand to 40 or 50%. Level the compost, gently firm, and then stand in trays of water so that they absorb the moisture up through the compost. That way, you're not disturbing the surface by pouring the water on top. When sowing seeds, sow as thinly as possible to try and avoid clumps of seed. If the seed is very fine, try using some very dry, fine sand, mix the seed in, and sow the sand with the seed in it. Don't bury the seed too deeply, and lightly cover with a covering of grit or something like vermiculite. Place on a fairly well-lit windowsill and cover with a lid or bag. In approximately two to four weeks time, you should have some seeds germinated. Remove the cover and every few days, mist with water just to keep the humidity and the surface wet. You don't want a very wet compost, which is where the grit and the sand in your mix comes in, allowing the excess moisture to drain away. You'll be growing them plants on for another few months probably until they're large enough and have developed some root and you can pot them on into their own individual pots using a specialist cactus compost mix or again maybe a sieved multi-purpose with about 50% grit or horticultural sand. At this stage you may also be able to identify the specific species of cactus that you've grown and you have the satisfaction of seeing the process through from the seed stage to an identifiable individual plant. When deciding where to place your sown seed, think about which rooms have good light levels, but preferably not full sun or directly south facing windows, especially in late spring and summer. Avoid window sills that may have cold drafts or that are above particularly hot radiators. If growing seedlings that would naturally grow in more humid conditions, you could consider using the bathroom or the kitchen for those kind of plants. Let's recap on the three things to consider when sowing houseplant seed. Firstly, take time in looking for seed of a plant that interests you and that will do well in your house and the conditions which are provided. 
cactus, for example, will prefer a relatively sunny and fairly dry environment compared to some other houseplants. Secondly, use the right compost. A free-draining compost is important particularly for succulent or cactus-type plants. So a seeds compost or a compost with added grit or sand would be ideal. For other houseplants, a seed compost on its own could be suitable. Thirdly, be careful about how you water your plants. As seedlings are growing and young, it's very easy to overwater them. Plants that have yet to develop a good root system and much leaves won't need much water. Perhaps consider misting them while they're very young, and so they only receive a fairly small amount of water and there is humidity around the leaves. As they grow and develop, and as you move through the spring and into summer, you can increase the water levels as needed. Thanks, James. And thing is, when you really look at seeds, they're actually fascinating. When you look deep inside them, the library's got some amazing books with drawings made from microscopic slides of the insides of seeds, showing what goes on inside. And so they're fascinating, beautiful and exciting. Well, that's it for today's show. I'm feeling ready now to get some of those seeds in the ground and get gardening. If you want to delve deeper into today's topics, you can do so at rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast or on our show notes. And in next week's show, we'll be talking about the highlight of any spring garden, the daffodil. If you've been stuck indoors with dreary old winter, rain and wind and snow and everything else, isn't it lovely when you can go outdoors in the garden and there's these little daffodils that are poking their heads up. It cheers you up. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. Happy sewing. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. 
and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 